technologies that are dominating today, they're dominating because they're able to deliver force faster, harder, stronger, smarter. So if we ask the question, what is money? Money is the highest form of energy that human beings can channel. Bitcoin is channeling human ingenuity into making it better. And, and every commodity is channeling human energy into making it worse. The lowbrow or, or the, the, the historic colloquial term is hodl, right? Hold on for dear life or just hodl or save, whatever. And the highbrow term would be adopt as a treasury reserve asset. Hey guys, so as you learned uh, by watching the What Is Money show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the world today. And so this begs the question, which I'm often asked, how does one build their Bitcoin position? And the strategy really is simple. I suggest first you decide on an initial portfolio percentage allocation and a target portfolio percentage allocation. Go ahead and establish the initial position for the one-time buy and then start dollar cost averaging towards your target portfolio uh, percentage. And you can also complement this by buying Bitcoin price dips to further increase that position and reduce your cost basis. And finally, I suggest to everyone to take custody of their Bitcoin, to move all of their Bitcoin into self-sovereign custody. Because again, Bitcoin left on an exchange is not Bitcoin, it's a Bitcoin IOU. And for those of you living in the U.S., there's no better choice than Swan Bitcoin to do all of the above. So Swan lets you set up automatic recurring buys for Bitcoin, also lets you facilitate one-time buys for, for buying price dips. And finally, they let you do, set up automatic recurring withdrawals into cold storage, which is a really big deal. And all of this they provide at the lowest fees in the business, uh, approximately 0.99% per year for weekly buys of $50 or more, which is about 60, I'm sorry, 70 to 80% less than Coinbase by comparison. And the best part, Swan is a Bitcoin focused education first company. Uh, they, they publish great content on their Swan Signal Live podcast. Uh, they publish a lot of content in their newsletter and website. And their, their team is just the absolute dream team of Bitcoin. Uh, I would say check out their roster. It's growing every day, but, but it's a super impressive group of individuals. And so with that, I would highly recommend you check out swanbitcoin.com backslash breedlove. You get $10 in free Bitcoin for signing up. Um, and it lets you stack sats with myself and the rest of uh, the Swan team as we continue the fight to restore freedom truth and virtue in the world through Bitcoin. All right, thanks. All right, guys, welcome back to episode nine of the Sailor series. Uh, today is another deep episode. Um, we're actually getting towards the end of the line here and um, covering some of the last bit of ground in the macroeconomic domain and tying it back um, into actually some philosophy towards the end, which I thought was really interesting. So today we're going to talk a bit about how Bitcoin is an elemental innovation, uh, tying this back to episode one, actually, 
uh, where we dis discuss Stone Age technologies, including fire, water, and missiles. So um, we actually are making the case that Bitcoin is an elemental invention akin to one of these Stone Age technologies, which as a reminder, if you haven't seen the prior episodes, highly recommend you go and check those out because they build a, a long uh, and strong intellectual edifice to get us to this point. Uh, secondly, we're going to talk about fiat currency, how it's a contaminated form of money uh, that actually leads to socioeconomic decay. And we're going to go into interest rates, uh, an area that's commonly misunderstood by even people uh, typically considered financially sophisticated. Then we're going to talk a bit about central bank price manipulation, how that influences markets. Uh, we're also going to look at market competition and the law of decimation how that plays out in nature um, and throughout history. Then we're going to get into the philosophical domain uh, and we're going to touch on a bit of stoicism and how Saylor has used this in his own life and how he sees its importance um, in markets in general. And then finally, uh, we'll leave off with a bit of discussion on anti-fragility and the vitality of life. So. Excited for this one. Uh, another crazy episode with the, the incredibly brilliant Michael Saylor. So with that, let's dive in. Sort of the purpose of humanity has been to channel energy through our intellect, right? That's how we've developed everything, essentially. And uh, I'm reminded of a quote by Alfred North Whitehead that I'll paraphrase. He said that it's common wisdom for people to say you should think before you act but that in fact, civilization advances by us being able to execute more important operations without having to think about them, All right? So we're actually, when we can embed these things, uh, these certain important actions in a protocol that we don't need to think about it as much, it'll, it frees us up to do other things, right? And that's kind of the layers upon which we build civilization. And um, it just seems like this, digital age we're going into is something radically new. It seems to be as profound as the Renaissance or as profound as the Enlightenment. Do you see it that way? Are we, are we co-evolving with the tools that we're creating and like the next 500 years are going to be something so fundamentally different than what history has been that it'll be hard to recognize it in a few hundred years? I, I do think that... Um the creation of Bitcoin and the creation of the, of the first effective crypto network is an, is an elemental force, it is, a, is a true invention akin to the discovery of fire or the discovery of atomic energy or the discovery of, of we can make a list of a lot of uh, fundamental things. <clears throat> Maybe one interesting thing is just, um, the science of, uh, or, or the science of sterilization, right? Germs, medicine, modern medicine, and the awareness of the importance of uh, sterilizing instruments and, and um, the way that uh, disease spreads, right? Immunology. Once we figure that out, we were able to go from living 50 years to living 70 years because we realized that we were just every time we entered into a, uh, a medical procedure, including the birth of a child, we were moving into an unsterile environment that was life-threatening. 
in fact, life, uh, soul, soul sucking, right? Like uh, life stealing, right? The death rate, um, the death rate uh, from childbirth was huge, right? And the average life expectancy was short. And we needed that breakthrough to realize that we were swimming in germs. And the very simple solution is wash your hands, sterilize your instruments. And you put that together with antibiotics and the human life expectancy jumped by 50%. So what if we're actually doing economics with dirty money? Mm. And so we've been dealing, we've been using monetary energy which is bleeding, right? It's, it's the same way as operating with, with uh, non-sterile instruments and the patient keeps dying and we don't know why. And um, the, the significance of Bitcoin is we're going from, from defective money, which is somewhere between toxic. It may just be uh, bleeding, like ineffective, bleeding two, three, four percent a year, or it's toxic when it gets to minus 10 or minus 15% real yield. So using toxic money, how is that different than using toxic instruments when I commit surgery on you? Like, how is it different than feeding you toxic food? I think, uh, I think we're breaking through this new world. We sterilize our instruments, we encrypt our money we're moving, uh, we're moving toward a science of non-toxic economic energy. Madame Curie died of radiation poisoning. I mean, she died of cancer from the radiation. They didn't realize that radiation killed you, that it caused cancer. There's a lot of basics in, in life that we don't understand. A, bit, a big breakthrough in, in uh, health is when we realized that sugar was toxic. My mother didn't know sugar was toxic, right? I mean, uh, conventional wisdom and, and governmental advice was you need your four favorite food groups and, and pursue a low-fat diet, but starch and sugar was fine. And of course, now we know that too much starch and too much sugar makes you insulin resistant, makes you type 2 diabetic, gives you cancer. My mother became diabetic, became overweight, got cancer. We thought it was just unfortunate. Doctor said, we don't know why these things happen. It's just unfortunate. You know, if I could go back in time, I'd be like, I know exactly why it happens. I know exactly how to solve it now. Right? Don't eat sugar. Don't eat starch. Stop eating. Fast. Sometimes, you know, I never, I never eat before like one, two, one in the afternoon. I only eat an eight-hour window. And I'll go two or three days and I won't eat. I mean, I adopt fasting and I won't drink anything with sugar in it, right? You want to live a long time, don't dose yourself with sugar. It's toxic. The instruments are toxic. The germs are toxic. We killed George Washington because we bled him to death. Toxic. The money's toxic. That's fundamentally the issue. The money is toxic. That I mean, that's the fundamental issue with, with, with inflation and we... If we segue into the discussion of inflation, it's everybody keeps thinking there is no inflation because everybody focuses upon a market basket of consumer goods. And if you look in the US and you look in Europe, they leave food and energy out of the basket of consumer goods. And they say, we left out the highly volatile food and energy from the index. 
Well, highly volatile means it went up. And <laughs> the number would change. Right. Volatility is another word for signal. We left out everything that actually changes in price from our price index. Right. Okay. It, it literally is like a Jedi mind trick. And it's like a triple mind trick. It's like we have a consumer price index and then we've left the prices that vary out of the index. Oh, check. We have a consumer price index. Well, first of all, it's not a scalar, it's a vector. It's an n-dimensional vector dynamically changing in time. You've just created a scalar. We've created a market basket of things that we think you want. Yes, your basket is what I want. The market basket of things that you want does not include assets. No, I would never want to buy an asset. Only rich people buy assets. Poor people do not buy assets. How do poor people get rich? You have to buy assets to go from being poor to being rich. I didn't, I didn't go from being poor to being wealthy by not buying assets or not creating assets. You create them or you buy them. So the entire field of inflation is defective. And the irony is that 99% of the economists that talk about it, they, they already have accepted the notion that a market basket of consumer products and services is acceptable. And it's acceptable to throw out energy and food. And I never seen an economist say, why don't we actually define the things that a working, a 22-year-old is going to want to buy by the time they're 32? And here's one thing, early retirement. Right. I want to retire, I want to buy early retirement by the time I'm 32. How do I do that? I need to buy a bond that pays me $75,000 a year in interest, risk-free. And I need for the $75,000 a year to pay my living expenses. And if the interest rate was 7%, then I need a million dollars for that. But the interest rate goes to 0.7%, I need $10 million for that. So from 2010 to 2020, the interest rate went down to 60 basis points on a 10-year government bond, which meant that the bond went from a million dollars to $10 million, which meant that the 22-year-old was suffering from 22% inflation on early retirement. But because that's not in a basket, because that's not something that you would ever want to give them, there's no inflation. You can actually track it and you can see that the inflation rate changes across a thousand different, if you just started with a simple principle, inflation is a basket of products, services, or assets. If you just did that, that's kind of the equivalent of saying, oh, it's possible the sun revolves around the earth, but it's possible the earth revolves around the sun. Let's find out which. Has anybody ever asked the question whether or not the basket should include assets or products or services? No one's even questioning the most basic premise. And it, go, it goes to this, the, the, the most, you know, it's pernicious rule of propaganda. And it's attributed to Joseph Goebbels in the Nazi regime. He said, and it's also attributed to Ogilvy. So maybe it's apocryphal. But he said, all of our focus groups show us and tell us, we can't tell people what to think, but we can tell them what to think about. I cannot change your mind once you've made it up and if you have an opinion, but I can get you to focus upon something. So if I just keep saying inflation, CPI, and it didn't go up, and this is what it is, 
when's the last time 100 million people said what we really wanted to buy was early retirement? Well, I, I didn't even know that was a product I could buy because I couldn't conceive of it. Well, it is a product you can buy. It's a government 30-year bond that yields 6% interest in a non-inflationary environment. That's a risk-free retirement. You can buy that. Right now, the problem is at 140 basis points, that would cost you, you know, thirty million dollars for sixty grand a year. How do I make that at seventy-five grand a year salary, saving fifteen grand? If I'm making five hundred thousand dollars a year and I save a hundred thousand, you know, I pay two hundred thousand in tax, I make three hundred grand, I save a hundred thousand. If I save a hundred thousand for twenty years. I've got $2 million and investing that in the government bond at 60 basis points or a hundred basis points. I've got nothing. Yeah. Wow. So, so the problem starts with the fact that inflation is misdefined. The right way to think about it is every single product service or asset has an inflation coefficient and the inflationary coefficient right, is that's the rate at which the price will change as I pump money into the money system, as I pump fiat. Right. And so the, co the coefficients vary and they're a function of the scarcity of, yes. of the asset and the demand for the asset, the information content of the asset, uh, the material cost or the variable cost of the asset and then the modularity of the asset. If I can stamp out the asset a million times out of a factory, it's going to be less inflationary because, because the fixed cost is higher and the variable cost is lower. Cell phones, mobile phones will not be inflationary because everything's in the fab. Software will not be inflationary because there's no variable cost. Uh, things, you know, streaming music on Amazon Music or Apple Music will not be inflationary because I can stream it a billion times. A Picasso will be inflationary because there's only, you know, 20, 50, 100. Right. The best, you know, five acres of beachfront property in the middle of Miami Beach will be inflationary to the mm. extent people want Miami Beach. Five acres in Ohio will not be inflationary because there's a lot of land in the world. The only land people want is in the middle of New York, the middle of London, the Hamptons, Miami Beach, mm. the middle of LA, the middle of San Francisco, the middle of Tokyo. Mm -hmm. You fly across this country and look down, there's enough land to park 10 billion people on five acres each. Right. If you look down, it's just got to be in demand and scarce. May I ask you a question about this? So the coefficient itself, in my mind, would be a product of the scarcity of the good or service relative to the scarcity of the money it's denominated in, right? Such that if the money supply is outpacing the production of the good or service, that good or service will inflate in price. Right. And then, so my, so to your point, it's not a single variable. It's not CPI as inflation. Everything has its own inflation rate. And then my second, sorry, second part of that question would be, why is the narrative surrounding inflation so distorted? Do you think it's intentional by governments that are clearly heavily indebted? Um, Cause I, I don't see a, any equitable benefit to inflation whatsoever. It's purely a mechanism for reallocating wealth. 
And I don't understand why the narrative is so distorted. 200 years ago, people thought they had to bleed George Washington to death to save his life. <laughs> and everybody agreed on it. People, you know, people, the whole point of paradigm shifts, right? Is everybody agreed that the sun revolved around the earth. Everybody agreed the world was flat. Everybody agreed that humans would never fly. I mean, everybody agrees on stuff until they realize that they're just utterly and totally and horrifically wrong. <laughs> so in this particular case, I blow a bunch of, of liquidity into the system. There's, let's say there's, a, uh, there's $50 trillion worth of energy, like pick a number, any number, and I blow $10 trillion worth of money in the system. And so there's still 50 trillion worth of energy, but now the money is diluted by 20%, right? So if I have a product and I can measure the pure energy content of the product, then, the, then if it's 100% pure energy, the price has got to go up by 20% if I expand the money supply by 20%, assuming it's completely liquid and in demand. What's an example of that? Like maybe um, a bond, like right. a pure financial instrument, something that is- that, a, a ribeye. Something, something that is tangible and you cannot produce it with any less energy. Right. This is, you know, this is why proof of work and Bitcoin is social. If it takes me a tangible amount of energy to produce that thing, then its inflation coefficient is going to be like 100%. And on the other hand, the cost to produce a streaming YouTube video, you know, is going to be the, the energy content is 1% of the value added or the value in use. And 99% of the value in use is... Um, is information, but not, mm -hmm. and, and, and non-scarce information. Mm -hmm. So it's got a variable cost of 1%. An iPhone's got a variable cost of 30, 35, 40%, right? Everything's got a, a, different, a different variable cost. Gold's got a much higher variable cost, right? Mm -hmm. right. Because, because it's, it's holding its energy. So if, when you look at all these things, you'll be able to calculate different inflation coefficients and therefore different inflation rates across an array of thousands of things. It'll be different inflation rates in New York City, Manhattan versus, mm -hmm. you know, farmland in Kansas. It'll be different. Right. So you can't really, you can't say, oh, this asset class. There'll be different inflation rates on different stocks, right? Because it'll be a function of the, you know, you notice, um, <clears throat> If the cash flows are likely to continue from the stock, right, subject to or, or less affected by inflation, then it's it's uh, it's going to go up. So, I I think that the pernicious mistake everybody makes is they um, they don't really think about in energy density and information density of their products, services, and assets. They're not applying conservation of energy. If the, if the law of conservation of energy applies that when I increase the money supply by 20% and if the energy is constant, right, then all of the, all the numbers have to change. And if they didn't change on, um, on uh, the deflationary products, they must have changed more on something else. So 
you can't very well be printing 10% more money and not have the inflation. It's just we're choosing to pick just 1% of the things that are inflated, the deflationary assets. We put them in a bucket. And it's, it's almost too easy. If I get to throw out all assets, all real estate, all stocks, all bonds, and then I get to throw out energy, and then I get to throw away food, Right. Well, what is, how could you possibly generate inflation? Right. Because you could print a hundred kazillion, kazillion, trillion, billion dollars, and the cost of free streaming Twitter and YouTube is not going up. Right. Yeah. You're throwing out everything that changes. So it's self-defeating. <laughs> so, so bottom line is inflation is, um, there, there's no such thing as a free lunch, but Infl the inflation that's being reported is an irrelevant metric. I call it, it's a metaphysical metric that's, that's been uh, artificially defined in order to provide some comfort. And it's working. The yeah. great majority of people, not only do they not think there's not, a, they don't think there's inflation. You literally have politicians lamenting that they can't create inflation and how important it is to create inflation, even as they're inflating every scarce asset on earth to the point mm -hmm. where no one can afford. Look, Robert, like I'm a rich man. Like I'm a, I'm a very wealthy man. I can't afford to buy a house in the Hamptons. Like, like I'll go, you know, like I'll go look at these things and I'll like, who's paying $47 million or like, like they're selling houses for $25 million on two acres. I'm like, are you guys out of your minds? Like, like how, you know, or like you go to New York City and someone's paying $25 million for a 5,000 square foot apartment. Wow. And you know, $25,000 a square foot. I mean, at the end of the day, it's obscene. And what you, what you can see is we're running 10 to 20% inflation for the past decade. We're just running it on all of the, the scarce luxury assets that have high information, that have high energy value. That, that I mean, what's the definition of scarce, right? Maybe the definition of scarce is that it has high ener energy value because if I could stamp out a billion trillion of them for the same unit of energy, I must be diluting the energy right, down, right. right? The same things that are hard to produce, right? So gold and Bitcoin, they're all inflating. and. I would say that it's, it is a lie, right? I don't, I'm not sure necessarily about the intentionality. You could argue about that, but it's definitely a lie this, that CPI is inflation. And it seems like it's being used to cover up this widespread system of theft. That is monetary inflation. I, I'm not even sure they realize that it is theft or that they're doing it. I, I'm half convinced that 80% of the people in government don't even realize that the inflation metric is a wrong metric and irrelevant. I, I, it's like I'm burning myself to death and I'm calculating the temperature on the counter six feet away and I'm <laughs> I need to keep turning the thermostat up. And I guess it's like they're just not feeling the pain. And that, you know, and, and, and because of that, it takes us to the issue of interest, right? And, and if you think inflation is not coming, so you keep printing money and you keep driving the interest rate down, 
the problem we have is really just a war on currency, a war on time. We render the money toxic. If you hold the money, once you understand that the, that the real inflation rate is 10 to 15%, because that's how assets are clocking, then you realize that any currency you're holding is, is uh, draining energy from your life at 10% a year. It's, it's almost like I put in a battery that drains 2% a month or 1% a month. I, I can't store energy. Well, you know, you know uh, another metaphor for what happens in the human body when you can't store energy? It's like, Robert, if I took you and I dropped you in the middle of the Arctic Circle, and it was 20 below, your body would start losing energy at a rapid rate. Mm -hmm. You'd freeze to death. It's literally like I come into your office and I crank the temperature down 20 degrees and I'm freezing you to death because I'm pulling the energy off your skin. And so what do you do? Insulate, cover right. up, right? How to, but what if you can't? If you're a wealthy person, you put on a fur coat, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe you're smart enough to realize, like, what do wealthy people do? You drop them in the Arctic and they get on their jet and they fly to the Caribbean where it's warm, right? Because they can't. And what do you do if you're poor? I drop you in the Arctic or, or even worse, right? I go to your hometown and I just turn the temperature down to 20 below and you can't leave. But, but, you know, it's like I slowly freeze you to death. I don't do it fast. It's like you don't even realize it's happening if it happened at a gradual enough rate. It's like I know I'm working hard. I'm just not getting ahead. I'm working hard. I'm not getting ahead because every time I put money in the bank, right, the cost, the price of everything keeps going up. Yeah. The uh, price of a house in Miami Beach, it was a million dollars on the street where I live, and then it's two million, and then it's three million, then it's four million, then it's five million, then it's eight million, then it's ten million. I'm not talking about every decade. I'm talking about every year. I'm talking uh, about from 2000 to 2010, you know, during that administration, we were printing money so fast that we had this housing boom. And, Everybody that owned houses were, were happy. They're refinancing their houses. But you look and you're like, how is it possible people bought this house in 1998 for a million dollars and I'm being asked to pay $10 million for the same house? Right. It's like, if you happen to be working for cash, it's what Pomp would say. You can't work for, if you're working for cash and paying taxes and then you're putting cash in the bank, then you're suffering from, from, inflation and then shadow tax life your life energy is being robbed from you and right. so that takes us to this this issue of real yield right um if the actual nominal yield is one and a half percent on a 30-year t-bill or zero percent on short-term money and if the asset inflation rate blended across all stock all liquid assets stocks and bonds and the like it's probably 15% right now, maybe 12, 13, 14, 15%. But let's just say it's only 10% just to be nice. Well, then you're looking at a real yield of minus 10%. You've never seen that number printed in any kind of public media. No, I mean, no one would dare say we have a negative real yield of 10% or would create a panic. But if you, if you did think negative real yield of 10%, 
what happens next? You cycle through and you say, well, if my cash flows of the stock aren't going up by more than 10%, that's diluted. Mm-hmm. Right? The only equity you can, you can buy where you're going to make out on is where the company is able to grow its cash flows more than 10% a year, right? And then you got to buy it at a decent price. So if your cash flows are, not, are growing 20 or 30% a year, maybe it's a good deal. That's why people like uh, you know tech, like Facebook or Google, because they did, and Amazon, they did for a while. I don't know if they will going forward. It's a lot harder to, uh, over the next 36 months, it seems much less likely that you'll see 20% cash flow growth. Will you see 10%? I don't, what percentage of the S&P 500 will grow cash flows more than 10% this year? Any? <laughs> Five percent, ten percent, like probably not more than ten percent, right? Right. We could figure it out, but if you're not doing that, then you're diluted. Of course, that means any any fixed bonds that aren't generating ten percent, they're they're long term diluted. Yeah. So where does that leave Bitcoin, right? Well, Bitcoin's got a positive real yield because you don't you're not getting hit with that ten percent currency. Yeah. Debasement. And so let me ask you, so this just to jump back a little bit to Bitcoin as a unit of account or a financial frame of reference. Yeah. Do you suggest here that it is actually useful to look and, and I guess you could do this with Bitcoin or gold, but to look at these historic price charts denominated in Bitcoin or gold to strip out a lot of this central bank induced market manipulation via inflation. I think that that would be a lot more useful in the next 10 years with Bitcoin. The first 10 years of Bitcoin was, it was so developmental going from zero. You have this asymptotic zero number. So I think that if you look over the next 10 years, I think that'll that'll become a a valuable thing. People have done it in gold. And I think that's probably, uh, it's a more stable, application because gold was a bit more stable through this time period. But again, it's manipulated to a certain extent and it's got its own problems. So we talked this would help this would help eliminate some confusion, I think, for people that think the S P is just going up forever. If you actually denominate it in gold, the chart doesn't look that great, right? It had a boom in two thousand one, but it's not been good ever since. If you if you simply divide it by the monetary supply, like if if the monetary Mm. supply going up by 7% and the S&P is going up by 8%, then the overall market's flat. And, and that makes sense because why do people think that uh, stocks should always go up 8%? <clears throat> I, I'm in business, Robert. It's, it's hideously competitive. Like the do you think that we don't have a competitive market for everything in this country? It's obscenely competitive. And so what you've got, if you look at the NASDAQ, is you have like five companies, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, right? Microsoft, right? Those five, and aren't they responsible for like 80% of the game? Everybody else is competing and it's a competitive market. And what does that mean? It means it's hard to grow 20% a year because whenever you do anything, someone else is copying you and they're pushing on you. So unless you get a dominant digital network with a near monopoly with these massive exploding 
economies of scale on a, on a zero variable cost, low variable cost, it's, it's very, very difficult to perform. I mean, most of the S&P isn't, right? To the extent that the S&P isn't Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, they're just a bunch of companies competing with each other. So you would think that they would grow at the, uh, at the productivity growth rate of the overall economy. But of course, which is what, 2%, 3%, why shouldn't it? If you had hard money, and by, by the way, coming back to that theory of uh, Bitcoin network value, Bitcoin network value goes through the roof, skyrockets in the early days when there's massive adoption and massive technology explosion. But in the, in the later stages of the S-curve, when it's fully diffused and when it's mature, it just grows with the GDP. It grows, mm -hmm. with, it grows right. with the productivity of the people in the network. If they grow 2% a year, it grows 2% a year. Mm -hmm. So any mature equity market, you would expect equity indexes, equity prices to grow with the GDP. If they're growing faster, it's the monetary expansion, right? Expand the monetary supply 7%, expand the GDP 1%, S&P should go up 8%. It's gonna be disproportionate. <clears throat> the big tech, the leading edge innovative tech is gonna be going double, triple, quadruple that. And then the trailing edge laggards are gonna be tanking. And then everyone, that's working their asses off as hard as they can is going to be barely keeping up. Right. Because you have to do a hundred thousand things right just to stay in business in a real Darwinian capitalist economy. Mm -hmm. It's like being flat means defeating 99% of the rest of the market being right. flat to be up. You have to, you know, Amazon's up because they beat 15,000 companies. You know, the next two are just slightly okay, and there's some that are flat, and everybody else gets destroyed because of the natural effect there. This reminds me of the, the Red Queen from, I think, Alice in Wonderland, who said, in my kingdom, everyone has to run as fast as they can just to stand still, right? I'll give you, I'll give you another example. <clears throat> there are 3,500 publicly traded companies. Nine point nine nine percent of humanity. Right? That makes you the number one out of ten thousand people. If you are smarter than ninety nine point nine nine percent of humanity, there are seven hundred fifty thousand people on the planet smarter than you. And ninety nine percent of them want want what you have if you have a billion dollars. If you, if you have a publicly traded company, 99% of the people that, that are smarter than 10,000 other people don't have what you have. And they can probably raise a billion dollars and chase you, right? They're harder, they're smarter, they're faster, they're stronger than you are, right? Well, I'm sitting at a company, it's one of 3,500 and the world is full of people that are smarter than me, that can raise a billion dollars, that want what we have, want what I have. That's Darwinian competition. Like there, there's the view from one side of the table, which is, oh yeah, well, you made it, you're successful. 
there's the view on the other side of the table, which is there's a guy that's going to work 80 hours a week that's going to be surrounded with 100 other people. They're going to work 70 hours a week. They're going to raise infinite money that are going to target you and do everything they can to take your market from you. Now, that, that's a very humbling observation. That's why you can't rest on your laurels. There's something beautiful, right, in that terrifying concept. That's what drives humanity forward. Keeps you honest, right? It is the core of stoicism, and it, it, it reminds you your best chance is to focus all of your energy, all of your assets on just this one thing that you're going to be the best in the world at, and you better stay humble. If I take my own business, I came public in 1998, there's a 99% mortality rate. 99 out of the 100 companies I competed with are gone. I'm of my peers, I'm the only person, probably, I'm, prob I'm talking about 100 publicly traded companies. There's probably 500 CEOs that launched a company with 20, 30, 50, 100 million dollars of capital, and they're all gone. That's what the open market, the free market will do. And it is what it is. I mean, that's, that's why the human race is what they are, right? There's always someone. And when they attack, if you're distracted, if you're arrogant, if you're, if you're fat, dumb, happy, comfortable, they're going to eat you. And if you're, if you're half focused or defocused, they're going to take your arm off. And if you completely focus, you can react if there's something they're doing that's good, you channel it, you inherit it, you evolve, you, you live and you grow stronger. And, um, and otherwise you shrink and they squeeze you out of the entire market. There's, there's something I observe, and again, it's, it's very stoic. It's everybody, everybody thinks when you're, when you're young, you want to acquire as much as you can acquire. So young men are acquisitive, young, young business people are acquisitive. Can you acquire the thing? That's generally the easiest hurdle to jump. The next question is, can you maintain the thing? Can you stay competitive? That's 10 times harder. And then the biggest hurdle is, are you going to be able to commercialize the thing or profit from it? Can you buy something or build something and continuously improve it forever so that you're competitive and then do it in a manner that is cheaper such that you can charge more for it than it costs you to do that thing. That's obscenely hard. So typically everybody thinks that they can acquire something. Then they, when they realize the maintenance requirements, you know, they, they fail. And then very few people ever get to the point where they can commercialize something. You can, well, you can apply it to a boat. Everybody wants to buy a boat. And then they're like, oh my God, this is really expensive to maintain a boat. And they're like, I can't afford to maintain the boat. But if they buy the boat, they got to spend 10% a year to maintain it. And then at some point, the question is, can you enjoy the boat? They're like, oh, I'm spending all this money on the boat, but I never have time to go out and use the boat. This is just crazy. This is way around my neck. I got to rid of this. It's an example of, of um, you know, being too ambitious 
in your in your inquisitiveness, and and it illustrates the the law of decimation. And the law of decimation is in the ancient Roman Republic, if the legion screwed up, they killed one out of every 10, 10 men in the legion. Actually, they made the nine kill the ten in order to remind them that they should stay disciplined. That's At random, point. right? Yeah, random. Randomly, yeah. randomly kill. They didn't kill them all because there'd be no legion left. So, so, but one out of ten is going to die if you break ranks and 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 retreat. So, is there a way? Is there ultimate punishment? Law of decimation. But, but you can apply it to everything in life, Robert. But it goes like this: the universe tends toward entropy and disorder. If something will go wrong, it does go wrong. That's Murphy's law. <clears throat> The law of decimation is one-tenth of all the moving parts in anything will break in any given year. If you have 10 employees, one will quit or become unhappy. If you have 10 moving parts, one will break. If you have 10 plans, one will blow up in your face. If you have 10 features, one of them will stop working. If you have 100, 10 of them will stop working. If you spend $100 million on something, you have to spend $10 million to maintain it. You're going to have to divert 10% of the cost of anything to maintain something. I talked about steel will last forever. Quote, if you maintain it. Most people don't maintain it. It costs a lot of money to paint a steel ship. Most people, they budget for the acquisition and they underestimate the maintenance because they don't have the humility or the life experience. This is, by the way, the problem with building Rube Goldberg devices into crypto networks. That's the problem with all the complexity with Ethereum and all the complexity with some of these things. It sounds good on paper, but when you put 187 moving parts into something and when one of them breaks and the entire thing crashes and burns and you die, it wasn't worth it. My, you know, when you're young, you overestimate the value of functionality and acquisition, and you underestimate how, how expensive it's going to be maintain things. Mm -hmm. And then you really underestimate this last issue. Can you enjoy it? Mm -hmm. Can I, this is a basic rule of life. Can I buy the thing? Can I maintain the thing? Can I enjoy the thing? Right? This, men are always reaching beyond their fingertips. Sometimes right. women do, like they want too much. They're empire builders. This is why Napoleon should not have gone to Moscow. This is why Hitler should have not have gone to Moscow. This is why you don't fight a war on two fronts. This is, and, and this is the essence of stoicism, but stoicism is really a, a philosophy that that is very consistent with thermodynamics and entropy and complexity theory. And uh, if you've ever run anything complicated or built anything complicated or, or, or been responsible for anything complicated, you know stuff breaks. Is this, do you think this we'll call it a law of nature that 10% of the components in a complex system break down and yearly. require maintenance yearly, annually. Yearly. Is this, is this connected to the religious tithing? You think where you're actually supposed to feed the flame, right? With 10% of your profit to maintain the institution. I think, I think it's interesting the extent to which you see the 10% number 
pop up on an annual basis. 10% is the maintenance obligation on a boat. 10% is, is the tithing obligation for thousands of years. 10% is, a, is a, a reasonable estimate, you know, for a house with 187 light bulbs, 18 of them will burn out, right? It just pops up over and over again. Uh, and uh, my only real explanation is just friction, randomness, chaos, life, corrosion, weather, right? Termites, bugs, bacteria. Like, the same would be true with your body, right? If you're talking about maintaining yourself, you got to actually allocate time and energy to maintain yourself. And a lot of times people underinvest in their own health. And then when they, and when they underinvest in those things, they blame it on genetics or they blame it on some unfortunate occurrence. We don't know why this happened. It's very unfortunate. These things just happen sometimes. I'll, I'll end with one, one thought on stoicism. And Nicholas Talab would appreciate this one too. It's like, the words don't matter. The action matters. Okay? Words are just words. And that applies to Stoics, you and me, and Marcus Aurelius. I think one of the great paradoxes of history is Marcus Aurelius was the last emperor in, in the line of the Antonines during the golden age of Rome. And there's Trajan and there's Hadrian, there's Marcus Antoninus, etc. And for about a hundred years, that was the Pax Romana. And each of those emperors was elected based on virtue as an adult and, and he adopted his heir. And they typically adopted a 40 year old emperor who had had a, a, a career in the military of virtue and he was tough and, and responsible and grounded in reality. And, and, he, and uh, you know, if you're a, a general in the army campaigning and you get drunk and screw around, right? Your soldiers put a knife in you. Right? You're not going to make it. You're, in order to keep the respect and stay alive in, in wartime around a bunch of guys with weapons, you better be a good leader and they better respect you because you're leading them to their death if they don't respect you. So if you actually rose through that merit, meritocracy, you know, maybe you had a chance. So Marcus Aurelius writes the meditations and it's the, it's the quintessential text on stoicism. And he says, you know, just cause you can't do a thing doesn't mean you should do a thing. He said, soon you will have forgotten all and all will have forgotten you and you should know your place in the universe and you should submit yourself and, and do the right thing for everyone else. And that's all good. But at the end of the day, the single most important decision Marcus Aurelius made in his entire career and his life was the decision on an heir. And when it came time to make that decision, he failed miserably and he appointed his son Commodus to be the emperor and Commodus was a minor and of weak moral and intellectual constitution and in no way, shape or form qualified to be emperor of all the known world. 
Mm. And, and by, by so doing that, Marcus Aurelius plunged the Roman Empire into chaos and turmoil for hundreds of years, resulting in the, the deaths of millions, if not tens or hundreds of millions of people. Awful. Awful. Wow. And there's your philosopher, King. He's remembered today as having written a good book, a bit of great story. But if you look at his actions... The actual action he took was the least stoic, most foolish, most painful action of any of his forebears, and it just uh, makes the blood curdle. That's I've, I've been anxiously waiting to talk about this, actually, because I'm a huge fan of Marcus Aurelius. I, that particular episode is documented somewhat well in the movie Gladiator, for people who want to go out and watch it. Um, but he is also known to have been one of the greatest emperors of all time, right? Up until that point where he made that fateful decision. He was, he was great until the, the succession. Yeah. He had all of the power of the Western world in his hands. Right. He had keys, right? The crypto keys to all the wealth and power in the Roman Empire. In the Gladiator, they imply he was murdered by his son. Right. But, it, but in the history books, they, they're pretty handed that, that, those keys to Commodus, and Commodus was a disaster. And he was that plot, platonic ideal of the philosopher king, right? One of the few, maybe possibly, arguably the only successful philosopher king throughout history. And I think one of his other quotes that I really liked is that no man can lose any other life than he now lives nor can he live any other life than he now loses. And um, Stoicism has been big in my life personally, and I think it's necessary for everything we've talked about today, for this eternal contention we have with reality. If you don't adopt a Stoic philosophy, how do you keep yourself together, right? It's just... I think Stoicism is critical, and I think he was a good writer. And I, yeah, and I, yeah. I would even probably admit he was a good emperor, until that final decision, Until he blew it. which I which I just lay out as a paradox, and maybe it's um, maybe it's a warning, and the warning is you could live a great life and you could be a great writer and you could be a great thinker, but at any given point, it's always that last decision. It's that you know you still have time to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Right? Did he choose? love over his principles is that what it was love for his son over the principles of succession presumably yeah interesting yeah you can read it read up on it and come to your own conclusion it's just it's short chapter i think i am with the last our last point just on vitality anti-fragility could be a, a synonym for anti-fragility could be um genetic vitality Darwinian vitality. If I'm evolving uh, in response to threats as a life force, then I'm anti-fragile. And this is Darwin's, Darwin's famous quote, it's not the strongest, fastest, or smartest species that survives, but the one that's most adaptive to change, right? Which makes it, makes it anti-fragile. Which makes it over time the strongest, smartest, right. but just not in the near term. Yeah. yeah. There's a, there's a certain terrifying beauty in nature. Um, 
there are no ugly animals. You look at a bird that it's beautiful. You look at a you look at a lion in the wild, it's beautiful. No one's got a mangy coat. There's no unhealthy anything. And most people, and that's our ideal of beauty, right? We think nature is beautiful. All the trees are beautiful. The plants are beautiful. The birds are beautiful. They chirp their beautiful sounds. The flowers are beautiful. What they don't really think about is what's going on behind the scenes because they've got this, this simple zoo backyard view of nature. I mean, the truth is everything's at its finest when tomorrow is uncertain. When the, when, when the life of the creature is uncertain. Um, I've actually got these beautiful banyan vine trees in my back of my house in Florida. One day on a beautiful sunny day, I walked by and I, and I stood and stared at the tree and I saw a bunch of ants running up and down. And when I traced the ants, I saw there were thousands of ants, and I saw there was a centipede, some kind of millipede about a hundred times bigger than a normal ant. And those ants had decided they were going to eat that. They were actually going to haul that millipede back to their queen as dinner. And they attacked it relentlessly, relentlessly. And I watched hundreds and hundreds and then thousands and thousands of ants going against this one, one millipede. And it's fighting for its life. And I swear I watched it for 45 minutes, like a war nonstop on a beautiful sunny day. If you looked around, you would have saw grass and blue sky and pretty water and birds chirping. But there was a knockdown drag out war to devour this millipede and it's fighting for its life. And I watched it crawl up the tree and, and the ants dragged it down and it did everything it could and they kept coming and you just had this horrific, terrifying, you know, sad conclusion, it's gonna die unless, unless a massive rainstorm spins up to blow water down and create some disruption, there's no, it's got no chance. It's going to get eaten alive. And it's horrific and it's terrifying. And that's life, that's nature. And then you start to realize on all those pretty National Geographic TV shows, you see the lions attack the antelope or the gazelle and they try and they miss like, well, no dinner for you tonight. And all the antelope trot off happy with their babies and the lions trot off happy with a little smirk. And everybody's like, that's about as much nature as they want. <laughs> Nobody wants the more nature. When you think about it a bit more, you realize, well, they're gonna miss three, four days. They're gonna hit one of those a week. And the, and, and the Nine percent of them are going to live, but one of them is going to die. And over three years, they're all going to die. Mm -hmm. And over three years, they're all going to be eaten by the lions. And that's nature. Everyone that's though, and by the way, every week that goes by, it's like they're clicking on a carousel, and the oldest one is getting slower, and a little bit, uh, a little bit tired, and a little bit less flexible, and. If they don't get the old one, they're gonna get the unlucky one. And that's why every one of them is beautiful <laughs> because they're all in the prime of their life. And the same is true with all the predators. They're all in the prime of their life. When they get a little bit old, a little bit hurt, they get driven out of the tribe or out of the pride and then that's end of it. So in nature, the life expectancy of those wolves or predators or lions is five years and in a zoo it's 15 years. And if you wanna see a fat, mangy lame one you'll find one in the zoo you won't find one in wild and the same is true with the rest 
And when those two herds, when they go at each other like that viciously, they're both strengthening. You take away the wolves from the deer, the deer overpopulate, they eat all of the trees, the trees all die, the trees die, they destabilize the bankment of the river, the river erodes, everything, you know, the riverbank gets screwed up, all the greenery dies, all the deer are gone, all the wolves are gone, you wanna fix the river, you put the wolf back in, the wolf scares away the, the deer, the trees grow, the roots stabilize the bank, the river flows, all the wildlife returns. This beautiful thing we call nature is in continual dynamic equilibrium and everything about it is getting stronger and harder and faster and getting cold all the time. You know, and the mother nature is supreme and men with delusions that they will defeat her, <laughs> right, are, are going to be disappointed, right? So the great, I guess the great challenge, right, is this paradox. And the paradox is the paradox of the engineer versus the zookeeper. We see nature, we want to engineer a better world for ourselves, and it can be done. But we can always, we can also reach too far and try too hard and, and, try to, and try to make water flow uphill and try to make time flow backwards. We, we can try to shake our fist at mother nature. We can defeat all of those, all of those natural forces. And if we try to do that, the energy consumption goes up exponentially. And eventually it goes up to such a level that we deplete ourselves of energy. And we end up like those natives on Easter Island where you chop down every tree to build your monuments to your gods and pretty soon there's no canoes and pretty soon there's no fish and pretty soon there's no food and pretty soon there's no you. All you've got is your monuments to your god and you're all dead because you depleted the energy in the ecosystem in, in pursuit of over-engineering your reality. Let me ask you about that point, which I think is fantastic. It seems to me like the free market is the economic expression of that Darwinian equilibrium. And that possibly with the, the implementation actually of central banking, which is a, you know, it's antithetical to a free market institution. It is, it's a, mono, it's a monopoly. It has, I guess in our attempt to over-engineer the economy, we have disturbed that Darwinian equilibrium in the economy. And that's why we're having all these haywire consequences like inflation and negative rates and so on and so forth. Yeah, we, we've, we've stopped. We've stopped it, right? We've attempted to stop time and, and, and interfere with nature. We're, we're, we're trying to freeze that dynamic equilibrium that's being continually uh, continually calculated all the time. Okay. Trying to turn, uh, we're trying to turn nature into a zoo.
Okay, so that was episode nine with Sailor here in the Sailor series, and wow, what an episode. Um, you know, we started off this series actually with a discussion of Stone Age technologies, which Michael laid out his thesis of how mankind is the dominant animal in the world because we channel energy across time and space more intelligently than any other animal. And he really built the foundation by drilling into uh, our use of fire uh, as one of the primordial energy networks, uh, our use of water as a hydraulic energy network for overcoming gravity, and our use of missiles for actually uh, competing at a distance. And in that lens, if we consider that that is the, the overarching goal of humanity, right, is to more intelligently or more precisely channel energy across time and space, um, Bitcoin is a, an elemental innovation, right? It's the only system we've ever had throughout history that allows us to channel energy, uh, you know, effectively at the speed of light um, and store it in a way that is totally or virtually totally loss minimized, right? There's no unexpected inflation, for instance, and there's very uh, minimal transaction fees, just enough to sustain the network. And you could contrast this with some, something like gold, uh, which we touched on earlier, that just depreciates to 2% a year at least, or something like fiat currency, which tends to depreciate much faster. So it, it takes a lot maybe to get to here. It's a, it's a whole reframing of your worldview. Um, but I think Sailor just did an excellent job of that. And I love the example he gave where Describing immunology, actually, is another one of these elemental innovations where we figured out antiseptics, um, we figured out how to use clean medical instruments um, and disinfectants and whatnot, uh, and, the, and the discovery of penicillin, for instance. All of these things that helped us uh, insulate ourselves from the entropy of, of microbes, right, to be to conduct medical and biological experiments and, and operations with less exposure to the entropy of nature, just catapulted our life expectancy. Right? We almost overnight went from say 50 year average life expectancy to 70 years. So I, I wonder, and I love this, um, the way he describes it is doing business, right? We're conducting economics thus far in history with dirty money, with contaminated money. Uh, and you could, you could analogize this to doing surgery with contaminated medical instruments, right? If you don't, if you don't, um, if you don't decontaminate your medical instruments and you try to perform surgery on someone, you're going to cause an infection and you're going to cause death. And this was actually a major cause of death throughout most of history. So it, in a, through a similar lens, if we're trying to build socioeconomic systems using a money that's contaminated with the uncertainty of inflation or confiscation or deauthorization, it, it tends to make me believe that the system we would build uh, would be more vulnerable to death as well. And I think that a quick study of history will show you that typically the debasement of money tends to presage the collapse of the civilization. So when the money becomes extra contaminated, this tends to be a, a specter or a harbinger of its ultimate demise. So I love this analogy. Um, and it, it really gets into the, the entropy aspect again. If we just consider that entropy is uncertainty, we want medical instruments 
that are free from the uncertainty of microbial infection. We want economic instruments that are free from the uncertainty of inflation, deauthorization, and confiscation. Like it just makes sense. The, the more certainty we can add to our tool set, whether in the medical or the economic domain, um, the more longevity we can give the, the organism or, or the organization, right? It just makes sense. So, and you know, as Saylor said earlier, monetary energy being the highest form of energy that humans can channel and channeling energy across space and time being the highest aim of man that effectively monetary energy is life energy, right? It gives us a claim on all of the forms of energy. So we can think of encryption, actually. I think Sidor tweeted this at one point, that encryption was the, the destiny of all money. The destiny of money is to be encrypted. We can think of encryption itself as a sterilization function or process for money, right? We've actually disinfected the money by encrypting its, its rules and its supply. Um, and this, you know, that kind of harkens back to something we talked about in earlier episodes as well, where uh, consumer packaged goods, when we're able to vacuum seal foods and store food energy in a stable fashion at room temperature, that was a game changer. All of a sudden, we, we had this uh, abundance of, of economic surplus and food energy that we could distribute around the world, and this led to uh, a surge in population growth. So all these analogies pointing back to this breakthrough that, that is Bitcoin, uh, that again, we've been building on in early episodes, I just found to be super exciting. And then, you know, in, in that lens, Saylor also talked about the story of his mother actually being diabetic. Um, and this was, the connection I made there was she was essentially following a governmental food advisory, right? Just eating the typical uh, food pyramid that, that governments, at least the U.S. government, used to advise, which had carbs as kind of the staple, the big thing at the bottom, bread, pasta, etc., and then worked its way up. Um, whereas, in fact, uh, anyone that studied ketogenics and, and paleo diets and whatnot, um, it, it tends to actually be the opposite. You want low-carb, high-fat, or high-protein diets. Um, and it's not the same. It's not one size fits all, but a lot of the diseases we suffer from today, like uh, diabetes, is from excessive carb consumption. So the connection I made there was that this government food pyramid scheme or mistake, whatever you want to call it, whether the intention was good or bad, it's actually rooted in the government fiat currency pyramid scheme, where we have contaminated the money. So we've contaminated even the, the uh, ideologies we put out in terms of nutrition. And it just has these cascading effects. Um, and I, I just I thought it was really interesting how, again, inflation is not just contaminating our economic efforts, but it actually bleeds over into the biological domain. So as Saylor said, fiat currency is toxic money, right? It's just, it's not sound. It is, not, it is not entropy free. It's infected with entropy and this has all these second order effects to everything that it touches. And the main problem is uh, this misunderstanding about inflation, right? We have this, this whole economic sphere today focused on CPI as inflation, but it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, there's deeper reasons why if you read a book like Human Action by Mises that you can never have an index for inflation because sort of like um, 
value itself or beauty, it's subjective, right? It's based on the things you individually desire, based on the course of your own goal-directed action. So there's not a universal index that can fit everyone. Uh, your, your own inflation number is a basket of these goods that you're seeking. And um, they, you know, the government metric is just taking what they you know, assume to be things that are desirable, but exclude assets. So it's like they, they're excluding the fact that anyone wants to get wealthy, which is absurd. They're also excluding food and energy and other volatile assets. Volatile meaning they changed in price. We're talking about a metric that is intended to reflect price changes, excluding things that changed in price. It is a non-starter. It's just absolutely crazy. And this is... <laughs> still the benchmark number that so many people are focused on. And it's just amazing to me that it uh, still goes on. So I think, and I love the, the discussion flowed into understanding inflation, which for me, I think this makes more sense is if you think about it in rate of change terms, as in how many dollars are being produced, the growth in dollar production relative to the growth in good or service production, right? If, if you pace a fiat currency production is outpacing uh, the productivity gains or the output on, on a particular good or service, it's going to inflate in price because you're gonna have more dollars chasing the same or only slightly growing uh, goods or services. So another way to say that is how energy intensive is the good, right? And the, the, the example that I like to think about is ribeye steak. We're not gonna invent uh, a technological breakthrough that makes cows grow faster, really, right? It still requires kind of the same amount of sunlight and energy and time and processing to deliver a ribeye steak. So, um, and turns out historically that actually the, the purchasing power of gold maps pretty nicely to, um, to ribeye steak or, or cows more generally. Um, and so in that way, it's, it's inflation is not, a single universal phenomenon that we can peg to one index number, it's occurring differently for every asset and every person in every place at every time. It's, it's just it's this undulating sphere of changing economic values. You can't possibly just put a number to and say that is inflation. Um, another way to say that is it's just uneven across space and time. So you're dumping new money supply into the system that money itself is distributed unevenly, and then the aims of economic actors are shifting unevenly as well, right? Supply and demand. So um, it's just hubris to think that we could peg it all to one index number. And then, you know, to that point, Saylor makes a more sound argument that a more appropriate measure of inflation, knowing that we can't peg it to a number, but what we can do is say, well, what do things, what are things that people generally desire and how much are their prices changing year over year? He gave the example of early retirement, premier real estate, um, you know, things like this, things that people actually want in life. You don't go to work uh, to think, I just want to put food on the table for the rest of my life. Like at some point you'd like to work towards an aim or a goal, whether that's a nice home, living in a nice neighborhood, uh, possibly, you know, I love the example of early retirement where you can just buy a government bond that pays you a, you know, quote unquote, risk-free rate for the next 30 years. Um, and, and looking at the price of, of government bonds and how much that's jumped uh, based on, based on uh, monetary policy. So I thought that was 
just a great example. And um, it's interesting because I think when you really get to first principles on it, inflation as we define it, fiat currency inflation, which is just an arbitrary increase in the money supply that adds no economic value to an economy whatsoever. This is very important to understand that printing money, quote unquote, it, you're not infusing an economy with any new factors of production, whether this is human time, ingenuity, tools, equipment, factories, like there's nothing being added to the economy. You've just reshuffled the paper claims on those productive factors. So you've, you've taken away from those relying on fiat currency or the dollars of store value, and you've reallocated those claims to whoever can get their hands on the newly printed money first and spend it first. So it's, it's, it is a mechanism for theft. I don't know what else to call it, frankly. It only has one purpose, right? You, could, you can argue about the intentionality, whatever. I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not here to debate that. I can just tell you that the tool, fiat currency, the inflation of fiat currency has only one purpose, and that is to reallocate wealth from some and allocate it to others against their will, by the way. So I don't know what else you could call that really besides theft. And it seems to me like this Keynesian ideology feels like a cover-up. I mean, I, I don't know if they just believe what they're saying about inflation. You know, Saylor, he was arguing that they bled George Washington to, to death and they thought that was the best course of action. Maybe that is the case. Maybe Keynesian ec economists are so deeply steeped in, in this ideology that they just can't see their own hand in front of their face, so to speak. Um, or perhaps it's something more nefarious, uh, more of a propagandistic thing. But, but regardless, I, I love the point that uh, he, he tied this into an old, uh, I think it was a German propaganda machine, says their study showed them that they can't tell people what to think, but they can tell people what to think about. And it is amazing to me how many sophisticated investors I've talked to about Bitcoin and macroeconomics over the years and people are just anchored to CPI as inflation it's as if this this wool has just been pulled over their eyes that, that they are satisfied with the answer presented to them versus thinking more deeply about it I can't help think it's related to this right it's just it, it's pushed as the represent representation of inflation and people just accept it at face value, which um, is just a really bad deal all the way around. So we got into a bit of discussion about interest rates and his analogy of actually suppressing interest rates is freezing out market participants or sucking the air out of the room, right? We're actually, if you consider that the interest rate is the price of money, money is this tool for trading time and energy we could consider that the interest rate is the price of time or energy effectively. And when you try and suppress it, you're, you're fighting against uh, the natural flow of time, if you will, or something to that effect. And it's, it's this misguided attempt to try and mute entropy that causes, uh, it's an, what Talev would call this is an iatrogenic effect so it's harm caused by the healer. When um, someone over-medicates 
you know, again, back to George Washington, they thought they were helping George Washington by bleeding him, but they were actually hurting him, right? They actually killed him by doing that. Um, there's, you know, many doctors today will prescribe you a pill for your cholesterol or your, your anxiety or whatever it may be, whereas, in fact, the right treatment of the core problem, right, not just a, a drug to cover up the symptoms, could be something more like removal, right? Uh, elimination of certain foods from your diet or fasting or, or whatever it may be. Um, and it, this to me, it points towards what central banks, I mean, ostensibly at least have been trying to do is that they're trying, their, their explicit aim is price stability and low unemployment. So, Price stability, you're saying that you want supply and demand worldwide to be like consistently close enough to keep prices stable. It just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it, you're, you're arguing against the entropy of nature again. And when you try and artificially inflate the money supply to create this veneer of stability, you're actually just delaying, you're, you're, first of all, you're manipulating market prices. So um, supply and demand, buyers and sellers are having trouble getting matched up correctly, which is what the market does because of this, this distortion in the marketplace. But you're also delaying and exacerbating the ultimate correction because you can't fool economic reality. And in that way, I see the, the, the vision I have in mind is Central banking is kind of like an air conditioner. So it's trying to pump, you know, an air conditioner is a heat pump. So it's pulling entropy out of the room. It's not actually putting cold air into the room. It's pulling hot air out of the room or heat energy out of the room. And if you ever stood behind an air conditioner, you'll feel it. You'll feel the heat coming off of it that it's pumping out of that, that room that it's air conditioning. And it seems like central bank is trying to accomplish that in a way. It's trying to paper over the entropy, the natural entropy of price instability and unemployment. But in doing so, it's it's pumping out, uh, you know, it's creating certainty for its shareholders, let's say. Um, so it's decreasing the entropy for its shareholders, but it's pumping out entropy onto broader society in the form of price distortions, an exacerbated boom and bust business cycle. And you could even throw warfare in there, right? Central banks were originally set up to fund warfare, to give governments a virtual limitless mechanism for funding the war, where instead of just needing to rely on their own savings, they could just print money and, and siphon savings off the entire productive economy. So that's my central bank air conditioning analogy, that it's, it's trying to cool the room for its shareholders with pumping heat onto broader society, and it, it's just disastrous. Um, so then we, we got into the relationship between interest rates and the risk-free rate. Oh, I'm sorry, inflation rates and the risk-free rate. So the risk-free rate would be the yield on government bonds. So in finance, we say that, uh, and this is a quote-unquote risk-free rate, that the U.S. government, for instance, cannot default on its debt because it can always just print more money to, to pay its principal. What that actually means is that it can never default on its debt because it can externalize the cost of that debt onto society via inflation. So that's your risk-free rate, whatever the, the U.S. 10 or 30-year treasury is yielding. And then there's the inflation rate, which is how quickly, again, not CPI, but we could say 
our proxy is how quickly is the US M2 increasing on a percentage basis. And the delta between these two is a negative real yield, right? If I can only get 2% on US treasuries, which is it's lower than that today, but US M2 is growing at 15% year over year, and it's expected to do that for the next few years, then I've got a negative real yield of 13%. So unless I'm growing my business or my own personal cash flows by more than 13% year over year, then I'm being diluted. I'm losing money. Um, and this is, so that it's the hurdle rate, basically, to use an, another investment term. You need to at least exceed the delta between inflation uh, and the risk-free rate to even be accretive to your business or your, or your, your household, whatever it may be. Um, so the only way to, to do this is you need to buy an equity, right? And a lot of people are doing this. They're buying equities as a store of value that is expected to appreciate faster than that negative real yield. Um, a lot of this is in tech because tech has uh, just a ton of productivity gains associated with it. And they've had you know a great decade, so they're, they're start to be market accurate expectations built into that price. Or if you look at the PE ratio of something like Zoom or even Tesla or Facebook, they're just, they're astronomically high relative to historic averages. So another way to think about that is the, there's nowhere to store your value um, that's safe except these equities that are expected to grow and outpace the hurdle rate and remain relatively scarce. Um, so that leaves you with these bonds that are, you know, they're yielding less than the inflation rate. They're long-term dilutive. And then those negative real yields, that's driving and incentivizing people to buy scarce assets. So again, equities, real estate, uh, gold. And then, you know, this is also the bucket you put Bitcoin's value prop in. Is that it's the scarcest liquid asset in human history. So of course it's going to benefit um, from this centrally planned market manipulation in both the bond and, and fiat currency markets. So, and we talked a bit about this, just the one way to strip out central bank market manipulation and get an honest assessment um, of what's going on is to just price the index in gold or Bitcoin. Again, Bitcoin's a bit more noisy because it's emergent. Uh, gold has a, a much longer history. Uh, or to say this point, you could also price it um, in the, the change in money supply. And this will strip out a lot of the manipulation. So if you look at the past decade in the S&P, it's just been one long bull market. You price that same chart in gold, it's flat. It hasn't done a lot. So that's, I think, really important uh, as, as far as changing your economic frame of reference, um, which is what's so tricky about talking about these things, about like what is money? Because it's, it's an a priori perception. And a priori means uh, no priors. So it's kind of like the, you're, you're, you're looking at what is looking, so to speak. And people just... The, the a priori uh, economic language today is dollars for most people. This is what they think in, it's what they trade in and negotiate in. But you have to look at the dilution occurring in that frame of ref reference, which is the dollar. So it's, it's a bit of a meta thinking, but it's really important for coming to sound economic conclusions and calculations. And then we got into, which I thought was really interesting, this, the competition and the law of decimation. 
Sailor made the point that even if you're smarter than 99, I've never thought about this, but say you are one of the top 0.1% most intelligent people in the world. You were smarter than 99.99% of humanity. There are still on this planet 750,000 people smarter than you. Like, that's just crazy to me to think of it that way. And in the digital age, I think what we're, what we're entering is this age of excellency almost, where because you know the bounds of location have been lifted through through digital tools and technologies you're, it's no longer good enough to just be the best local guy at uh, whatever it is singing for instance uh, maybe you're a billy joel impersonator or something it's no longer a good career strategy to just be the best uh, billy joel impersonator in your neighborhood because people have youtube now they can go and look at the best billy joel impersonator of all time or maybe even Billy Joel himself, and that they can seek their entertainment there. So you start competing for audience with the best of the best in any domain that can be conducted remotely, which you know increasingly is, is every domain. So this means that excellency is gonna have more of a tendency to rise to the surface, and that markets more typically are gonna converge on winner-take-all dynamics. So changes things a lot you know this this non-locality or um, not being bound by geography really changes the game a lot in a lot of ways so sailor's point was you, you've got to focus your energies to compete well on your specialty whatever that is whatever skill set or unique ability you have whatever gift you might have uh and you've got to stay humble and you just really have to focus on on that and developing it to the best of your ability um but also maintain the humility I think necessary to succeed and learn and grow. Uh, and you know, anytime, as he was describing his experience at MicroStrategy, it's just it's ferociously competitive. Anytime you become arrogant or comfortable or resting on your laurels, one of those seven hundred fifty thousand people are just going to eat you up, right? They can go out, raise a bunch of money. They want what you have by definition uh, if you're successful. So. Um, if anything, digital tech has made the world more fiercely competitive, which I thought was really interesting. And uh, as far as the law of decimation, you know, we brought up the point that in ancient Rome, there was a, the law, the law of decimation, was anytime the soldiers broke ranks or retreated, that 10% of them would randomly be put to death. And they would make the other nine put the 10th to death. And what this was, was a massive disincentive to malperformance so no one wanted everyone had a big incentive to hold the line so to speak and to act in a concerted effort because if they didn't if they if they got fearful or or started um, you know kind of operating their own individual best interest in a battle where you need the, the collective effort of the battalion to win then they they're engaging in this lottery where either they're going to be put to death or you know at least one in 10 of their friends is going to be put to death. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, really good system for inducing skin in the game. And it turns out that <clears throat> this is, again, kind of getting back into natural law, it's sort of a reflection of what we observe in nature and that one in 10 of any, any, any system with 10 moving parts, one is going to break down per year, roughly. So a 10% uh, breakdown in parts or features per year. 
Um, and thought that was interesting. I've, I observed that as just being, again, we're creating these systems that are intended to confront the entropy of nature and deal with it in certain ways. Well, that has a cost, right? And every year by some universal magic, that number tends to be about 10%, which I thought was interesting. And this pointed back to steel, a sailor referred to, like steel will last forever if you maintain it. So you need to expend uh, the 10%, whatever, per year to maintain it in terms of painting it. Uh, maybe this is also related to the religious tithing, which we see as like a 10% contribution annually to the institution. Uh, and that's, that's across a number of religions. And I think this too points to a strength of Bitcoin is that it actually has minimized moving parts. So, um, and it's, it's open source. So anything that does break down is, is there's as many eyes on it as possible to quickly repair it, but, but it minimizes it's saying in comparison to something like Ethereum that just has countless moving parts. It's going to, it's going to suffer more from this law of decimation over time than something like Bitcoin will, which is more optimized for survivability. And then finally got into the philosophy of stoicism and this is a philosophy which ties back into everything we've been talking about. It's consistent with thermodynamics. So again, if we're just saying it in a purely physics sense, we would say truth is an accurate portrayal of reality. We know that everything in the universe is energy. So therefore, conservation of energy, which is the first law of thermodynamics, that is truthfulness, right? So. The systems, the strategies, the techniques, the businesses, the individuals that optimize for energy conservation. It's just, this doesn't just mean uh, defending all the energy you have. You can actually uh, increase energy efficiency through innovation, right? So being exploratory, figuring out a new way of doing things can actually add to your energy efficiency as well. So there's this ratcheting effect between um, defending what you've gained and gaining new innovation. So this stoicism is this thermodynamic philosophy, if you will, which I think is so cool that it's, it's a way um, many of the ancients accorded their behavior and it, it directly maps on to uh, innovation and, and uh, general biological success. <clears throat> so, the Stoic, again, when we have this law of decimations, we have these systems encountering the chaos of nature. There's a little bit of breakdown over time. Uh, the Stoic embraces that. The Stoic knows and willingly embraces what the, your, your death, right? The, the potential death of your child, uh, the potential loss of your business or your fortune. There are all these practices when you get into Stoicism, like negative visualization, um, where you may imagine, for instance, the next time you hug your mother, you just imagine that, that that may be the last time you ever hug her. And through that mental practice, you're actually training yourself to be more grateful for something in the moment. And you're, you're preparing yourself for the inevitable loss that will come, right? Your mother will be gone one day. So, and stoicism is a deep rabbit hole in and unto itself. I'll just leave it at one example, but I thought that was really cool that stoics embrace entropy and choose to accept it and strive on valiantly nonetheless. And I think that's the only proper approach to life if you're going to be successful. And then 
say they went into the paradox of Marcus Aurelius, which I'd never heard before. I'm a big fan of Marcus. Um, you know, Marcus, great philosopher, king, great writer, um, but in the end, sort of blew it on one decision. And say this one here, where he said that words don't matter, you know, actions do ultimately. Uh, and even one action can undo, uh, you know, a lifetime of good action. That This reminded me of Taleb's, don't tell me what you think, just show me what's in your portfolio. Right? It's more about the actions you take with skin in the game versus your cognitive beliefs. Um, and for me personally, I think, I tie this back to religion actually, is that people always wanna argue, you know, do you believe in God, do you not believe in God? Like, I love Jordan Peterson's answer to this, where I act as if God exists. Right? It doesn't, God doesn't care about my cognitive beliefs, it's more about my embodied action and my, my moral behavior uh, that really matters in the world. So it's a bit of an Occam's razor thing there. Um, anyways, the, the story of Marcus is, you know, he was, he had the keys to the kingdom, right? He's one of the most successful emperors of all time. He was the, the platonic ideal of the, the philosopher king. And he, on his final decision, essentially and as emperor of Rome, decided to break duty, break with tradition, break with the, the stoic protocol, if you will, of appointing um, the most competent man for the job, um, for succession, and instead appointed Commodus, which was his son. And there's something really deep here. There's this, this age-old struggle between, I guess you would say duty and love, um, and I don't know, this one left me thinking. So I, I, I'd, I'd be excited to hear some of your guys' feedback on this, but it's really fascinating to me that we had this you know, guy we held in such high regard, and then at the, you know, the, the last yard line, so to speak, he just fumbled the ball. Um, but you know, I don't know if it was, as I say, I don't know if it was based on love for his son or something else, but um, It'd be really interesting, right? If you, if you made this decision out of love, so to speak, yet it still proved to be the wrong decision for civilization. Just, just a mind-bending thing, but that was super interesting. And the warning there is, you know, you can live a good life, you can be a good leader, a good writer, whatever, but there's all, you have to always remain humble and never become arrogant, no matter how much success you've had, because there's always that opportunity to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, as Sailor put it, which I thought was brilliant. And then finally, uh, we completed the episode with a discussion about antifragility and vitality. And I loved this point that animals in the wild are all beautiful because they're constantly being conditioned against the chaos of nature. Right? Once they've you know, went past the tipping point of misfitness, they're no longer um, serving their highest and best function in the world, some, something else eats them, right? They're, they're, they're gone. So, and it, it's nature rolling forward and becoming better through this process, this dynamic equilibrium between predator and prey. And it, it's this, this natural, you know, Darwinian natural selection that's constantly promulgating excellence and beauty uh, in the world. And it's just, it's, a, it's great to behold, you know, ever watched a nature documentary it's one of the most awe-inspiring things i think we can watch so 
um, another way to think about this is just nature constantly sharpening her own strategies against herself. So the, the, the strategies of animals, the survival strategies, are constantly being tested against the environment. And those, those that succeed uh, roll forward and those that do not are weeded out. And so you're left with kind of just by definition the most fit uh, creature for, for its, its environment. And when we try and disturb that dynamic equilibrium, um, it, we're just exacerbating that correction. So we're, we're, instead of having these little corrections along the way, we're giving uh, time for the strategy and the environment to diverge significantly to where an ultimate you know, cataclysmic uh, return is necessary. Uh, what, you know, and that's what nature does. It always selects and it always restores balance. So all of that tying back into, again, what I think central banking is just a failure of an institution because it's tried to over-engineer this dynamic equilibrium of nature, right? Where we have price instability and unemployment as a natural product of the business cycle. Um, it's trying to paper over that. Uh, it's trying to pretend, or, or even, not even pretend, it's trying to uh, eliminate this dynamic equilibrium and create something that's predictable, right? It's trying to um, subdue the entropy of nature, if you will, which could be a, a good intention, but clearly has a poor result, uh, which leads to suppressed interest rates, which is like trying to reverse the flow of time. Uh, so it's all of this, this effort going countervailing to nature that always fails. I think that's the core point here. Um, and, you know, it, it turns nature into a zoo, right? We said every animal is beautiful, but if you really want to see some, some not beautiful animals, you can actually go to a zoo. When they're, they're sad, right? They're in a cage. They're not fulfilling the function for which they were evolved. Um, and I think central banking sort of turns society into a zoo. It softens us. Um, in this process of trying to protect us, quote unquote, from price instability and unemployment, it's actually reducing our skin in the game, softening us, uh, externalizing entropy onto society. So, um, yeah, I you know, it's another awesome episode. Hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, Sailor and I are going to do at least one more episode. So maybe more after that. We're going to see how it goes. Um, but I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did, and I'll see you again here soon. Thanks. Reserve asset.